Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. He is risen. Yes. <laughs> so you're getting there. You're getting there. For those of you who are new or relatively new, especially this past year, uh, there's a story that goes, and this is why there was a muddled response. It wasn't because we're not clear what's happening today. Is that because when I grew up, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, I became a believer later in my teenage years, went to a church, and somebody came up to me, a very enthusiastic older gentleman in a business suit on Easter Sunday, and came up to me, said, young man, he is risen! And it was clear a response was necessary, and not growing up in a Christian tradition, I just said, right on, man! <laughs> Wasn't the right response, clearly. And it's kind of growing here. Thank you guys are on this corner. So, he is risen! Right on! <laughs> amen and amen. Would you stand, get a copy of God's Word, and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab one of the Pew Bibles and turn to page 903. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or 903, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, let me read to you God's Word. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if, the, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Easter, the resurrection. I, like you, go to the stores, and I see every time this time of year, if I've mentioned before, all the magazines, Newsweek, USA Today, Nat Geo, Time Magazine, they run the same stories all, uh, at this time of year, don't they? Jesus Christ, the resurrection. Did it happen? What does it mean? How does it matter to us today? You think after 2,000 years of asking this question, we would have put it to bed already. But as we just read this morning, we are not the first to ask the question of the resurrection. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 was written in the mid-50s, just 20 years after the event itself. And as you can see, Paul was challenging them because they believed that the resurrection of the dead had not happened. Now, they were, the claims about the resurrection of the dead were being challenged not because they were suspect or weak. They weren't. As a matter of fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the most empirically verifiable historical facts that there are. It was that the claim that Jesus of Nazareth had died and rose again, resurrected from the grave, was simply outrageous. Not outrageous in terms of impossible to believe, but outrageous because this is just too good to be true. And by, at the end of the day, or at least hopefully by the end of the sermon, you will realize as well, there's only one real reason you can deny the Christian faith. And it's not because uh, it's intellectually weak or it's unsustainable or it's historically unreliable. That's not the case at all, as we'll see. But the only reason you can actually discount the Christian message is that it's just too good to be true. And at the heart of the Christian message is the fact of the resurrection. So this morning, I want to make three observations based on what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of what we just read. Here are the three observations I'm going to make this morning. Number one, the resurrection as an invitation to the gospel. Number two, the resurrection as an invitation to meaning. And number three, the resurrection as an invitation to a new horizon. Number one, the resurrection as an invitation to the gospel. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, in the very first verse, Paul says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives to us three facts that are critical. Fact number one, he says that Christ is. It's just an assumed fact. Christ is. Secondly, Paul says Christ died according to the Scriptures. And thirdly, Christ rose again from the grave according to the Scripture. In essence, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that the essence of the gospel is simply this, Jesus. Now, I don't mean that in some kind of flat, uh, one-dimensional way like Jesus, the Word itself, is some kind of magical key that unlocks the gospel message such that all you have to do is just say the name and all of a sudden it appears, things happen. That's not what I'm getting at. That's not what Paul is getting at. What he's saying is Jesus, the very fact of His existence, the very God-man, Creator, come to walk with the creation, the very fact of His existence, the very perfection of His lived life, completely fulfilling all righteousness of the law, no one ever has done it before or since, the fact of His existence, the perfection of His lived life, the victory of His death, and the significance of His resurrection. So when Paul is saying, this is the gospel, it is Jesus, he's talking about those central realities and central to the gospel message as we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the evidence that Jesus is the sin-conquering, death-destroying, life-giver and bringer. You see, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes that death comes to humanity because of sin. It's an amazing fact when you stop and think about it. Friends, what Paul is saying in, first, is in Romans chapter 5 is that death is accidental to human existence. Death is not essential to what it means to be a human being. 
Because humanity existed before death, and Paul tells us, according to Romans 5, 12, that death came to humanity because of sin. So the ultimate challenge and problem that humanity faces is actually not death, because death was the result of the true problem, which the Bible tells us was sin. The Bible also tells us that Jesus Himself was the perfect sacrifice for that sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He Himself had no sin, which is why death had no claim upon Him, which is why Jesus was able to rise again from the grave. His life was perfect, therefore His death was unwarranted, and His resurrected life was evidence of these facts. It's actually pretty astounding when you think about how that works. As Paul recounts for us these facts in 1 Corinthians 15, it bears worth thinking about them. Fact number one, Jesus lived. I know for many of you, that's just, that's just without question, but many people still actually challenge that. But Jesus actually lived. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I was a forklift operator. I worked for a company called Time Warner Video and Books. They were like the Amazon before Amazon. Young people, there was a life before Amazon. And you would order books from them, and we would process their return books. And being a forklift operator, I didn't have much money, and we could buy the return product at a discount. And I found a six-volume set, something called The Sacred Writings of the Religions of the World. It's about 22, and I wanted to learn about that. So I, I plunked down my $2 because I got the discount. And I got all the sacred writings, the Quran, the, Judish, the Jewish Tanakh, the New Testament, uh, the, the Hindu Rig Vedas, the, the, the Buddhist uh, Bhagavad Gita's. I had all these. Read through them. I had no idea that I was reading one of the most distinguished historians of religious studies from Yale University, Yaroslav Pelikan. This is what he says at the beginning of one of his books. Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Fact one, no one contests Jesus lived, okay? The second fact that Paul talks about, Jesus died. Whether or not you're a Christian, this shouldn't be controversial, right? Everyone dies. Jesus died. Fact number three, a community sprang up proclaiming Jesus died and rose again from the grave never to die again. These are the facts of history. They're uncontested. Now, you might be sitting there and say, well, of course they're uncontested. You're a Christian. You believe these things. That makes sense to think that, but that would be wrong. If we were to look at history and completely ignored the Bible… If we looked at nothing, imagine if the Bible had never been written, and we looked at no Christian writings or any early church fathers and just looked at what history had to say about itself, what would we, could we discern about Christianity and the Christian message? So, in the Roadiever household, my kids were growing up, they would always hear me say, cite your source. They would always say things, and in the age of Google and YouTube where everyone's got an opinion, I wanted my kids to say, to learn, an assertion is not an argument. Assertion, anyone can make an assertion, but can you make a case? So I'd always say to them, cite your source, cite your source. So let me cite you my sources. Here are some sources for you people who are into this kind of thing. 
These are historians, philosophers, none of them from history are Christian or sympathetic to the Christian worldview. None of these have any bearing, with the exception of maybe the Talmud, uh, of any kind of religious writing. From these five sources, I had a six, but I couldn't actually get the primary source, so I didn't put it up there. But from these five sources, here are eight facts that we can glean. Number one, just about all the sources will refer to this, Jesus actually lived and was a Jewish teacher. Number two, many people believe that He performed healings and exorcisms. Some people believed He was the Messiah. Josephus, we'll get that from him. Number four, He was rejected by the Jewish leaders. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Caesar Tiberius. We get this from Talmud. The earth went dark at the moment of His death. We get this from Phlegon, quoting the Greek historian Thales. Number seven, despite His shameful death, his followers believed he was still alive, and his followers spread beyond Palestine such that by AD 64, there were multitudes of them in the Roman Empire, the capital of Rome itself. And number eight, we get this from Pliny the Younger, all kinds of people from city to countryside, men and women, free and slave, worshiped him as God. We get all that information completely ignoring every Christian writing and the Bible itself, just from historical documentation. Now, in essence, what is that? Those are the contours. You've got to do a little bit of interpretive work there, but those are the contours of the gospel message itself. Jesus, His life, His death, and His resurrection. Friends, in other words, the resurrection is an invitation that you can trust the one who conquered death in all its forms to give us life in all its forms. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the resurrection is also an invitation to meaning, because as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, everything begins to fall apart as Paul makes clear in verses 12 through 19. So, let's take a look at that next. Notice what Paul says, that if there is no resurrection, verse 13, then Christ is not raised either. And if Christ is not raised, that means death has not been conquered, which means, Paul says, your hope is futile. And he kind of ratchets it up in verse 17 and says, your faith is a waste. And then verse 19, it says, and your life is pitiful if the resurrection did not take place. So, if the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel and the resurrection did not take place, it follows then there is no gospel. So, the very linchpin of the gospel is the resurrection, but also the resurrection is the linchpin for what ultimately brings meaning to life. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that everyone out there whether they're Christian or not, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, longs for resurrection to be true. Every man, woman, and child out there, Christian or not, whether they're from the East or from the West, longs for the resurrection to be true. And I know this because they tell me so. It sounds something like this, though. If I could only get back the last 10 years of my life, if I could only take back some of the words I said to my wife or my husband or my kids, if I could only get my job back, if I could only get my health back, if I could only get my figure back, if I could only get my youth back, if I could only get, friends, what is that? What are those statements? What are those statements other than a desire for another chance, 
a, a desire for a do-over, a desire for newness, a desire for life to be brought back in what is past and dead. Resurrection. They don't say it. They don't use that word. But at the heart of those statements, it is a desire for newness, a desire for second chance, a desire for resurrection. And only the Christian faith has that concept at the very core of its belief system, resurrection, for a second and third and fourth and fifth chance to have a do-over, to get the things you lost back. Nothing else, not the, not the sciencism of the West and the rationalism of the West, not the subjectivity or mysticism of the East offers this. Only the Christian faith. Friends, whether you might call it physicalism or naturalism or Darwinism or materialism, however you want to define it, the kind of scientific rationalism of the West cannot give life the significant meaning we all long for. Because that worldview that we live in is that this life is all that we have, and when it's over, what do you get? This is your only shot. Once you die, your heat energy disperses as your molecules and atoms break down and your brain waves stop, and then it's nothing. Those of you regulars here at Christ Community Church, you know that January is biography or autobiography month for me. So every January, I will read a biography or autobiography of somebody, living or dead. A couple years ago, I read the autobiography of Leo Tolstoy. Uh, for those of you who don't know that name, you should. I mean, he wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina. Um, he's kind of like a, a, a Russian version of Ernest Hemingway or David Foster Wallace. I'm getting blank looks. Okay. <laughs> Imagine the, Bono, the singer of U2, combined with Ron DeSantis and Elon Musk, and there's Leo Tolstoy, okay? Got that? He was a man that had it all in the 19th century. He had everything, wealth, wine, women, world recognition, everything. And in his 50s, he came upon an existential crisis, and this is what he says in his autobiography. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And so, so he gave up his, his career. He could do that. He gave up all of that and just pursued the sciences and the burgeoning fields of knowledge at his time to find out what meaning life could give him. And he was a brilliant man, nominated for three Nobel Peace Prizes, nominated for four Nobel uh, Literature Prizes four years in a row. Brilliant. Gave it all up to pursue, is there meaning in this life? And this is what he writes from his pursuit of the sciences. You are what you call your life. You are a transitory, casual cohesion of particles. The mutual interactions and changes of these particles produce in you what you call your life. The cohesion will last some time. Afterwards, the interaction of these particles, that's Tolstoy, will cease and what you call your life will cease, and so will all your questions. You are an accident, and this is what the science has said, Tolstoy realized, this is what science is telling him, you are an accidentally united little lump of something. That little lump ferments. The little lump calls that fermenting its life. The lump will disintegrate, and there will be an end of the fermenting and of all the questions. 
So the sciences and the rationale of the West cannot provide us the answers, but neither, friends, can the mysticism and the subjectivity of the East. All the religious systems of all the major world religions, only one offers the kind of hope and meaning that we're talking about this morning. Growing up in a Shinto household, for me, thinking about my spiritual ancestors and their spirits and feeding the idols in the house was as natural as a kid in Texas going to church on Sunday. And yet I could see the hopeless hope of nirvana, the end of desire was the, gain, the goal of Buddhism and Shintoism. Hinduism wasn't much better. A belief that you are simply uh, recycling rebirths, hopefully that you are getting better and trying harder with each successive cycle. Islam and Judaism rejecting Christ, the very grounds and means for a resurrection, and only can offer a mor morality. Friends, the resurrection in the Christian faith is an invitation to meaning because it is the only thing that can make sense of the simultaneous desire in every one of our hearts for, for joy, for contentment, for purpose, and connection in a world where these are almost impossible to secure. Because the resurrection tells us this world isn't our final reality. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford scholar, says this, if you find yourself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. Friends, this weekend that we have been celebrating together, if you've been with us on our Good Friday service, this weekend, Good Friday to Easter itself, this weekend itself is a metaphor of the gospel message in a profoundly broken world. Let me explain with an illustration that Pastor Greg Siders wrote. It's set up like this. Friday is the day your dreams died. Sunday is when God will do more than you could have dreamed. Saturday is the seeming eternity in between. On Friday, you miscarry. On Sunday, the child who meets you at the gate calls you mom. On Saturday, you are selling the crib. On Friday, the tests come back positive. On Sunday, cancer will be extinct. On Saturday, clumps of hair clog the drain. On Friday, you are served divorce papers. On Sunday, you will be the bride at the wedding feast. On Saturday, you sleep alone in an empty house while he takes the kids for the weekend. On Friday, you went out of business. On Sunday, your shop will be full of those who treasure what your hands have made. On Saturday, you're punching a time clock to climb out of debt. On Friday, your child was arrested. On Sunday, he will be what you have always known he had the potential to be. On Saturday, you look through the glass at vacant eyes. You press your hand against the barrier and you say into the phone, I love you still. On Friday, you lost your home. On Sunday, you will get the keys to a mansion. But on Saturday, you are concealing your grief as you try to make an apartment feel like home to your children. On Friday, your sin was exposed. On Sunday, God will see you with nothing but righteousness. But on Saturday, you wear a scarlet letter like a tattoo. 
On Friday, she died. On Sunday, you will see her face, hear her laugh, and feel her touch. But on Saturday, you bring flowers to the grave and come home to darkness. Saturday, it feels like forever, but it isn't. Sunday is forever. Friends, we live in the world of Friday and Saturday, but the resurrection says Jesus is Sunday. When he came to visit his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for days, and his sisters were weeping, and they asked, why couldn't you do anything? Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, the resurrection brings meaning to this life precisely because it's evidence that there's more than this life. And that verse brings us to our last point, that the resurrection is also an invitation to a whole new horizon. Now, my original draft of my outline for our sermon this morning, I had written out all the traditional arguments to prove the historical veracity of the resurrection account in the Gospels. And there are three irrefutable lines of evidence, the empty tomb being one of them, the post-crucifixion sightings of Jesus, as Paul talked about here in 1 Corinthians 15, being another one of them, and the origins of the Christian community being the third. All told, there's about 14 pieces of evidence that can traditionally get marshaled together to prove the, the reality of the resurrection. And then about Wednesday, I scrapped all of that, changed my mind. Not because they don't have their place, and they actually do. And, and maybe one Easter, maybe, maybe next year, I'll walk through all 14 lines of evidence. But I scrapped it all because presenting the, the resurrection as, as rational based on the evidence actually misses one really huge big point that I want to make this morning. You see, in our world... We give credence to what we can see, what we can hear, what we can smell, what we can touch. As if all of reality is simply defined by what we can hold and perceive and handle. Unless you can provide intellectual justification or empirical evidence, we reject it. We live in a closed worldview that this is all that there is. We've been locked in it for centuries now, and we can't see anything out beyond it. And so we try to prove that this is true. Don't you see the evidence? I came to a realization, and I get it. At face value, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it cannot be fitted into our contemporary worldview. It really, any, really any worldview except one. And this is where I decided to change it. There is one worldview that the resurrection, resurrection, resurrection makes perfect sense, one in which such a miracle is actually the starting point of understanding reality. That is the whole point of the resurrection. Let me explain what I'm talking about, friends. What happened on that Easter Sunday morning can only be described as an event horizon. An event horizon is a term that cosmologists use to describe the point in which the laws of physics do not apply. It is a boundary point at which the realities on one side of the boundary can never interact with the realities on the other side of the boundary. 
And I've been reading some things about black holes, and, and this term comes up a lot. And I thought, this is a perfect illustration. The resurrection can only be understood by analogy with what happened on the day creation itself came into being, except this time it's a new creation. The resurrection of Christ is this new paradigm accepted in faith it becomes the starting point of a wholly new way to understand human experience and the world in which we live that makes much better a sense of the evidence and the experience we have of this world that we live in. Friends, in the same way that you cannot use a broken telescope to see the majesty of the heavens, the same way you cannot use a deficient worldview to view the world around us, it just will not work. And we've been trying for centuries to explain meaning and hope and life just through the hard sciences of rationalism and empiricism, or on the West or on the East, mysticism and subjectivity, one-hand-clapping kind of stuff, and neither one of those have the tools to help us make sense of the world we live in. But the resurrection of Christ is an event horizon, a boundary that separates realities. On one side is Friday and Saturday. And on the other side is Sunday. It is an invitation to a new dawn, a whole new horizon of reality. So the question we have to ask is the question that the apostles wrestled with, what do we do? What is the response? And I love how the, the writers of the New Testament, they, they don't engage a lot of times in the historical evidence marshalling that we do. They just simply say, here's the response. Believe, not because it is explainable, but precisely because it's not. You cannot explain this with our limited worldview, and that's what brings us greatest joy. We're placing our trust in an event which shows a God who's not constrained by our laws, our limitations, our boundaries, or our own struggles, or our own reality. And by the way, that is exactly what we would expect if there was a God that exists like this book tells us that there is and only the Christian message holds out that kind of God without apology or excuse. Who He is and what He does is not someone you can understand entirely any more than a toddler can understand Einstein. And that doesn't make Einstein any less real. The toddler will never grasp Einstein's work according to its own intellect, assumptions, and evidences. In fact, the toddler doesn't even have the appropriate tools to do so. But the toddler can experience and know Einstein simply by trusting him. And in the final analysis, that is what the resurrection is, an invitation to have a relationship with someone who transcends your whole experience of reality, not because you have been able to figure him and what he does out, but by trusting he is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life. You see, the resurrection is the gospel because it is the promise and the proof of a whole new life. The resurrection brings meaning to this life precisely because it proves to us that there's more to this life than this life. And the resurrection is an invitation to a whole new horizon because it is the starting point of reality, not a contradiction to it. Yes, like I said, it's outrageous, 
but it's true. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you. And we know why for 2,000 years we have been contemplating the resurrection. It is the focal point of the work that you have done. It is the, the, the event horizon. All the world we understand is so limited. We bump up against our limitations, and, and we keep looking to our limitations to explain it. But your word tells us, no, that's not how this works. There is a whole reality that transcends what we are bumping up to every day. And we access that by faith through what your word tells us. And Lord, you give us evidences of that in history, the incarnation, the life of your son, the death and resurrection. And Lord, we admit that there is an act of faith in trusting these things, but we know it's not about figuring you out. It never has been. It's about experiencing you and trusting you. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here this morning that, that's just coming by, listening, that they would begin to realize they can't explain you. You're inexplainable. You are outrageous. And the only excuse we have at the end of the day isn't that it doesn't make sense because you do. It's that it seems too good to be true. Would you help them realize that it's not? that you are, this is true, this is the gospel. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.